Thank you for being here. I acknowledge that the city of Hamilton, where I record this podcast, is situated upon the traditional First Nations territories of the Erie, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, Mississaugas, and the Chonadon of the so-called neutral tribes. Hamilton is also directly adjacent to the Haldeman Treaty Territory. This land is covered by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, which extends between Montreal and Fort Erie. It was an agreement between the Haudenosaunee and the Anishinaabe. That wampum uses the symbolism of a dish to represent the territory and one spoon to represent the people that are to share the resources of the land and only take what they need. Hamilton is home to many Indigenous peoples from across Turtle Island, and this land acknowledgement is a small gesture to recognize the rich history of this land and so that I can better understand my role as a settler, as well as neighbor, partner, and caretaker. I stand in solidarity with all those that fight for justice on behalf of the murdered and missing Indigenous women, girls, LGBTQ+, and two-spirited people. I grieve the generational trauma created by the residential school system and the 60s scoop. I grieve the children and childhoods lost through ignorance and racism. Miigwech. Thank you. Welcome to the arena, where sometimes the hardest part is showing up. My name is Linda McLaughlin. Thank you for being here. I am so pleased to share season four of my podcast with you. Once again, my guests are drawn from many backgrounds and circumstances that propel their inspiring stories of courage. First up this season is John Ruffalo. Before we got to the formal part of the interview, we did a little catching up. In September 2020, John had a catastrophic cycling accident, so we were catching up on his recovery and rehab. We share a love of the Teddy Roosevelt quote, The Man in the Arena, which was the inspiration for this podcast. As you will hear, it is part of his ethos. He speaks his mind about health, wealth, sustainability, and legacy. Thank you for listening. This is episode 41. Thank you so much for agreeing to have this conversation with me, John. I appreciate you carving out the time. You're uh, <laughs> to say that you're highly in demand would be uh, an understatement. <laughs> Everybody's trying to get in your calendar, I'm sure. But I really appreciate you being willing to share your story and to chat with me today. Great. Thank you very much. How long are you still doing rehab every day? Is it like three or four hours still or? Yeah. Wow. It'd be like that for my guess is for sure the first two years. And then after that, there's a lot of debate of, do you actually see functional improvement? Does it really do anything for you? Frankly, no one knows. So my view is, do as much as you can, as fast as you can. And it's not going to hurt me. It might be a little bit waste of my time. And that's the only thing, but right. I progressed still, I'd say it's measured not in days, but measured in weeks. Every week there's a, a performance improvement. Right. You're a very goal oriented person. So I have to think that they're giving you some milestones to look toward. I'm walking now. You're walking. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Did I tell you that? No. I'm walking. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. So I have a walker. I'm assisted walking, but my cycling outside is up to 15 kilometers now. And you're cycling? Uh-huh. Well, Jesus. You, yeah. And you can't see what's on my phone if I show you that to you over there. Could you? Well, you, I guess you could kind of see Yeah, that, I can but... see. Yeah. Okay, hold on. I don't know if you can't see. Can you see that? Yeah. Uh, My legs can power. Isn't that amazing? I'm a paralyzed guy. I I hit 25 kilometers an hour on that one there. So that was August 21st, almost a month ago. And my power has gotten up since then. It's been in the last month. But now this is two months ago. That's me walking in my walker. There you go. See there? Wow. 10 months after my, my injury. Give me one more year and I should walk with walking poles. Right. And then I have mobility. Now, is that my end goal? No. Like I would like to be back fully. That's a recumbent bike. I like to be back on my, my normal bike. And I'd like to be, I was never a marathoner, but I like to be able to jog or move quickly without aids. The one thing at least from a mobility perspective, that is a question mark for me is my below the knees have not turned on from a mobility perspective. Okay. That's the biggest question mark. So why is that relevant? What you couldn't see on my bike is that I wear these braces below my knee to keep my foot from not flopping. Like I would like to remove the damn braces. And if I move the braces, I'm walking. Now it's more rehab, but I'm walking already. The likelihood of me walking is high in a year. It's walking unaided. Is it possible? It's possible. It's not probable. But in two years, it's possible that I'm walking unaided fully in two years, provided that my nerve fibers regrow again. Yeah. This is what 20 to 30 hours of rehab every fucking week gets you. That's right. Oh my God. Yeah. And what you don't see, and the reason why is that it's not like a super miracle, maybe, but I don't think so. It's because for 99% of the people, it's difficult to have the financial resources to do so in Canada. It's bullshit in Canada in that. The acute care is very good, but rehab, there is really no government paid rehab. I could afford it because I continue to work. Mm. Most don't. That's the problem. So no one really knows, does rehab really work to get you to walking? There's not enough examples, but what I've been told is your path is probably 99% rehab and maybe 1% stem cells, maybe. But even the stem cell side, uh, no one really knows about that. But that opens up a whole can of worms in terms of conversation around accessibility on so many levels and in every sense of that, mm-hmm. in that word from financial accessibility to that care. What's the productivity loss? What's the loss to the economy? Let's look at it in economic terms, in terms of somebody who has catastrophic injury as you did, and now they're no longer able to contribute, or 
not able to contribute in the same way that they once were, the options to people and the barriers then to people who are in a wheelchair or having to go through this rehab and put in the hours that you are is massive. Yeah. So they've quantified, my doctors told me at Toronto Western, they've quantified the cost to society, never mind the productivity, Mm. but just the drain for a lifetime of a a paraplegic like me, it's $10 million a person. Okay. So what Canada has decided, and it's complex, but it is better to get you out within three months when, look, like, really, I should have been in the hospital for a year. If I didn't have the resources, I should just stay in there for at least a year. And I'm very strong now, and I could do anything in the community. But they kick you out in three months, and they don't provide you any rehab care. The drain to us is $10 bucks plus lost productivity. And they don't factor that in because they really don't have someone of my income earning capacity that typically has this situation. The most common spinal cord injuries are diving accidents, motorcycle, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's actually a lower income situation for the most part. And so no one cares. And so here is the problem. And it's not just for spinal cord injury. It's for a lot of things in society. Wealth brings you health. Where did That's a very interesting debate. So you could try to fool yourself and say it doesn't happen. But I was stunned that the wealthy might be able to rehab themselves as opposed to the poor. How fair is that? Just not right. Yeah. No one gives a shit. Yeah. So we've been chatting for a little bit. I thought I would throw out my intro that I've written for you. John Ruffalo, you're a father, son, a first generation Canadian, an avid cyclist, and a member of Les Domestiques, a philanthropic cycling team. You are what one might call an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. In the business world, you joined Omer's pension fund over a decade ago and founded Omer's Ventures, a private equity fund established to back promising Canadian companies, where notably Hootsuite, Wattpad, and Shopify. You decided to leave and start your own private equity firm called Mavericks, just as the pandemic hit. You pushed ahead on raising the capital in spite of some of the uncertainty, surrounding yourself with some of the most recognized business leaders and brands in Canada across numerous verticals through your team and advisory board. And then just over a year ago, in September 2020, you were out cycling. It was your weekly three-hour ride on a road outside of Toronto. The last thing you remember was hearing a truck's air brakes, and then you felt the impact. You should have died. To the shock of the EMT who was treating you in the field where you landed, your eyes popped open and you began speaking and tried to get up. He managed to stop you as the trauma to your body might have caused you to bleed out internally. The impact shattered your T12 vertebrae. Your pelvis was an open book fracture, which left it in six pieces. All of your ribs on the right side were shattered. 
the doctors had to wait 36 hours before they could perform any kind of surgery. The chances of your survival were slim in those first few days, but somehow you pulled through. And by some miracle, you did not suffer any kind of brain injury. You began rehab, and within two months of your injury, you began calling your investors from the hospital bed to close their investment in the fund. There is so much to this story. Welcome to the arena, John. Thank you very much, Linda. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be anywhere at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And the uh, and the postscript, I guess, to part of this story, there's many different parts of it, but you just shared some video with me of you actually out cycling. You've been walking. So mm-hmm. you have had beyond a miraculous recovery. It's not perfect and you're still largely in a wheelchair, but that is a pretty remarkable achievement. Yes, it's been a lot of hard work so far. I'm in the first year and it's a long, windy road ahead still. Anybody who looks at the Canadian business landscape, you are what we might call a titan in the Canadian space. And you've done so much to work at building the Canadian private equity space. And now with this new fund, what was your hope in setting this up? What did you see was missing from the current landscape? Sure. When I joined Omer's to build Omer's Ventures, I had a three-part plan that I expected would take around 10 years. Mm -hmm. And to overly simplify it, if you were to segregate companies through their growth stages and using revenues as your proxy, making it very simple, Getting them from zero revenues to $10 million was one phase. Getting them from $10 million to $100 million was another phase. And then the final phase was getting them from $100 million to $1 billion plus. When I founded Omer's Ventures, it was really predicated first on getting companies from zero to $10 million. And there's lingo from a financing perspective that describes those stages, but essentially what that involved is building or developing some sort of product and seeking what we would call customer market fit. Will somebody buy the thing at the price that you want for them to pay for it? Once you hit that $10 million or thereabouts, you start to go into scaling up mode. And at Omer's Ventures, only after about three years were we starting to see, wow, a bunch of these companies are able to get to the $10 million. Where the blockage was, how do you really scale them up? Really through sales and marketing, brand distribution partnerships, you name it. But how do you generate faster revenues than the growth of your expenses? And really through my entire time at Omer's, I really focused in on those two areas and started to get companies that were hitting the $100 million. And now I'm starting to think, okay, I'm starting to gear up for the third phase. And the first company that really blasted through that in flying colors was Shopify. And so how do we get 
a bunch more companies like Shopify to go from the hundred million to the billion dollar plus where you scale in a, in a global perspective. And really around 2017, 2018, I was really focused in on that final piece. But I, as you had indicated, I determined that it was more effective for me personally to complete that final piece in a private fashion, in a private firm, as opposed to through the pension fund. And that led to the thesis behind Maverick's private equity. A year into it, just after I got hit, I realized that I was still physically capable of executing that strategy. I felt that last phase of my life, and to be honest, I was thinking about what does Canada need? And nothing was going to get in my way to complete that last phase of my life because Canada needed it. And as you had indicated, I never did damage my brain. Thank God. I don't understand why that didn't happen because my face was an unbelievable mess. It was scraped beyond belief. So I did hit my head. It just didn't crack for some reason. And so I felt a little bit, maybe there was a little bit of divine intervention and my mission was incomplete. So it would behoove me to complete the mission. And hence, I continued the mission, raised all the capital and launched the fund. And that's where I am today. Okay. So there's a joke in there about a thick skull, but <laughs> yes, there, there's an Italian one too. Have you ever heard of the term testa dure? It's I'm a Southern Italian, which is known for hard heads. And they're going, see, there you go. Uh, so that's exactly right. So you're the son of an Italian immigrant who yes. came to the country with 10 bucks in his nothing. pocket at 17 years old. Yeah, so it's a bit of a classic Canadian immigrant story. But take me back to your childhood. What was dinner conversation like in your household? How did that start set you on the path that you're on now? Yeah, I grew up in a classic blue-collar immigrant family in an area of Toronto, which you know, I, I think it gets denigrated more than it deserves, but it's the Jane and Shepherd, Jane and Finch area. That is the area where I grew up right up until my university years. I went to school, all of my school within a kilometer of the area, and I worked there. And I worked right on the corner of Jane and Finch, right in the middle of the perceived war zone. But it wasn't like that at all. And my family worked paycheck to paycheck. I didn't know that because I felt that we got everything that I ever wanted. But when I look back, a lot of the things that my family did for financial survival reasons is now viewed upon as the envy of other cultures. We grew all our own vegetables. We smoked all of our meats. We made all of our own wine, all of our tomato sauces, etc. It's And now you pay massively high prices for that. But we did it, or my parents did it, in order to feed us. And growing up, I felt a desire to be viewed as a normal Canadian white individual. 
and did everything in my power to shed my immigrant roots. And what I didn't realize at the time is that it did make you tough as nails and resilient because you had to be. And nothing was given to you. You fought for everything. Little did I know that it really formed the foundation of who I was, not because I wanted to, but it was foisted upon me by circumstance. And I didn't quite realize who I was until I graduated from university and I went downtown. And although I am Caucasian and look white, I, for the first time in my life, realized, oh my God, I am not white. There is a real white population in Toronto. And boy, I'm not part of that. Already now, your defenses go up. But with the defense, I think it ultimately further increased the resilience. But what it was also doing was increasing my adaptability in a variety of different situations. And the one advantage I did have, and really the only advantage I have compared to other immigrants, is I do have white skin. And it did uh, give me that advantage, despite the fact that I was not considered a white individual. So it was very odd to me. And, and there was a couple of incidences that really triggered it that shocked me. But I think it made me ultimately stronger at the end of the day. What event in your life has had the most profound impact on you? I would say there's been several. Obviously, this accident has been one of the most profound, but I would say one of the first most profound. So I just gave you a little bit of my shock once I got out of my little cocoon and going into downtown Toronto, realizing, uh, oh my God, the world is different. It wasn't until I was in my late 20s, I had gotten divorced, I had gotten married very early because that was the thing to do. And I knew in my heart that I wanted to advance in my career as much as I could. And at around 28 years old, I started full time when I was about 21. And although in seven years, I worked harder than anybody. So I really worked the equivalent of 20 years and started to realize that what was driving me was the same insecurity and chip on my shoulder that I had developed when I left the cocoon and realized there was a very different world. And by that 28, where I was a very determined young individual and nothing would ever get in my way, I started to realize, dude, calm down. Life is going to be okay for you. You do not have to fight like your parents did. You don't have to worry about money. So calm everything down and start to enjoy life just a little better. And I would say that was the first moment of balance in my life that I started to embrace. What does living a courageous life mean to you? To me, it's all about authenticity. And it's a little bit even, I, I was moaning about this 
just in social media, just in, in this current election as an example. We're now a society not that dissimilar to the United States where people look at parties not from the policies or the ideas, but rather the personalities. And the personalities are not even fact-based. Perhaps the personalities are not authentic in and of themselves. And it's almost like we don't care as a society whether folks are authentic or not, as long as they represent a view of something, whether you come it from the left or, or from the right, ignoring the actual specifics of the policy agenda. And it just feels like everything is now in sound bites and no one is really listening, debating. And when I meet individuals who say what they mean, come to the point, they'll even have the guts to say it on social media and they're going to get vilified it, but it's the truth. Whether you agree with the policy idea or not, it's the truth. So let me give you an example. It's not to criticize either individual, but let's take George Bush versus Bill Clinton. From a policy perspective, at least in the United States, George Bush took a lot of beatings and Clinton largely did not. And George Bush's policies were then made into a caricature of who he is, this evil, decrepit man with unprincipled, whereas Bill, a very smart individual, great orator, well, a very good friend of mine knew both very well. And politically was totally aligned with Bill Clinton. And I asked him this very question, and he gave me the answer that I expected. And he just said, my great friend is George Bush. He's such a good, principled, authentic man. It is who he is. I hated the fact that he backed the policies of whatever it was called, the moral majority. But Bill Clinton's all about Bill Clinton, and his ego is legendary. And he goes, he's not the guy that I would spend any sort of time with. And that's an illustration. And this is not an illustration to berate Bill Clinton, because I don't know him personally, but it's just a reflection of the society. So I really align myself to those folks who are in the arena and fighting it. And one such man, and this is the reason why we become very close is David Suzuki. Mm-hmm. There is no man in this country that has been in the arena longer and had more fights than that man. And when I see him fight, I was like, oh my God, how do you take it? How do you take the spewing hatred that you get from all of these closed-minded individuals that think that he represents a threat to society? David represents the man in the arena Uh, more than anyone I could think of in this country. One might think that you are focused on the bottom line, on the return, on the investment, but I'm also aware of the fact that Mavericks was supporting the women's eights rowing team who won the gold. And you're prepared to roll up your sleeves, as you've just said, you're 
the vice chair of David Suzuki's foundation, who has been working in the environmental area for so long and has been watching us driving towards this wall Mm -hmm. with climate change for decades and trying to warn us against what ultimately happened in BC, never mind elsewhere in the world, what happened in in BC this summer, where people, more people died in BC this summer from that heat wave than they had from COVID. That might be one of the cooler summers that they're going to have. Yeah. On that happy note, what's your legacy? First and foremost, my, my, my legacy is my children. And I spend a lot of time, I would say, trying my best to influence them undercover. Because if I try to do it in front of their face, they ignore me. But, but that's aside from my family. I've spent 30 years of my career unintentionally focused around this, but it just led me down this path and I I never realized, I never swayed from it. And it was really around entrepreneurship and innovation. The two are linked in that I believe that through innovation and automation, we're going through this global transition, which will be very painful. We haven't seen it really yet. And it's really the replacement of human labor with machine labor. And in the post-industrial revolution, we moved massive numbers of people from the farms to the cities in order to work in the factories to give us all of our consumer desires. And you're still seeing this in China, still in massive numbers, by the way. So you can just see China is simply doing what we had done 150 years ago. But as you continue this innovation, you're seeing individuals that are no longer needed. And the whole uh, need and desire to be an employee will continue to wane. And I've seen this through from my post-university graduation And the only path that I saw 30 years ago would have to be a shift from an employment mentality to you're going to have to be your own entrepreneur. In many cases, you'll just be yourself and you're going to be a subcontracting your services to the highest bidder. And this whole idea of lifelong employment is going to go away. Or in some other cases, you'll be able to hire other subcontractors to work for you and you can create value. But this is the path to prosperity in this country. The The path to prosperity is not to get everyone to work for the government, despite some government's uh, intended objective to do so. I have been really spending my career on helping those individuals get their dreams realized. And why is that? Because to the extent that they're building more and more companies that stay in this country, the more opportunity my children will have in having opportunities, either if they build their own businesses or if they work for others as subcontractors to those businesses. So I really believe this is the future path 
uh, to success and wealth as this nation. Now, there is no true prosperity without environmental protection. And you got to combine the two together and you have sustainable prosperity. So everything that you see me doing today has those two levers. So the prosperity is being led by entrepreneurship and innovation, and the sustainability is through the protection of the environment. If we get both working together, then this is the panacea, and this, I would hope, is part of a legacy for me personally, because I've been helping those organizations help Canada drive to those objectives. I normally ask the question, what would you do on your last day? But to (laughs) you, I'm going to say, why are you here? Why are you still alive? I've already had my last day. It's, you know, I've been in some respects blessed with my last day. So what have I really been focused in on is really just two things. As regards to my family, I always felt I was invincible, by the way. Now I've always taken care uh, of, of, of my family, but now I feel like I'm really taking care of them for their future, for my children. I think that I was, I've been serving their immediate needs up until now and ever since the accident, I've been really focused more on shaping who they might become far more directly than I have. And I would say more so on their future careers. My kids are still in their teens, so they got a long way to go. But I've been spending a lot of time on that so that if I'm not here, being able to shape that so that when I'm not here anymore, they can do that on their own. And so I'd say that has been my number one focus. And my number two focus is building this firm and getting the thinking about changing the world in the manner I just described and being a capital provider in order to ignite that. And even setting up the firm in a manner that is designed for succession. I am not building this firm for me to work in the next 30 or 40 years. That was never my desire, but it was my desire to hunt the brightest and the best that could carry on a legacy and hopefully use some of the thinking that I have today, pass on the firm to them and allow them to move the firm in a direction that they like, but using the same sort of ethos would be amazing to me. So I would like to have some sort of business legacy as well from that perspective. And that is what I will be focused in on over the next two years. Of course, building the firm to make money for my investors, that goes without saying, you better do that or you're going to be out of business. But there's so many things that you can invest in. And if you can invest in multiple things with a multiple return profiles, but one of them can just change the world for the better, well, why wouldn't you do that every single time? A quick note for listeners at this point, John mentions ESG, which refers to environmental, social, and governance criteria. 
So although our firm is not an ESG firm per se, the ethos behind it is totally ESG. And we beat the living crap out of each other when we're looking at various deals about how some deals, we will only do deals that are either neutral from an ESG perspective or positive. But if anything is negative, the team shuts it out. And I already start to see that path. And I'm just very much enjoying that. If you had the opportunity to have a conversation with someone for five minutes, living or dead, who would that be? Living or dead. You know who I missed out on? And it was somebody who I was dying to speak with. It was Nelson Mandela. So mm. remember I was saying about the authenticity? Nelson reminds me of David Suzuki. The amount of haters that he has and yet the influence that he had, I thought was remarkable. I was supposed to go to the South African World Cup with a bunch of friends of mine. And I had organized several matches and then we were going to throw in a little safari in there. And I was coordinating it with our offices in South Africa. This is before I was over at Omer's. And I was coordinating it with the CEO of the South African operations. And he had his assistant work with me to set up the trip. And I just said, do I have anything missing on this itinerary? And she just said, yeah, you got everything, except for seeing Nelson Mandela. And I just chuckled and I go, you know, it's funny you say that. That is the one person in the world that I would just love to meet. And she said, my best friend is his assistant. He goes, would you like to meet him? And I said, are you kidding me? And he goes, yes, but he was quite ill at the time. Mm. And he just said, you can come in, you could pay your respects. We'll only give you about five minutes, but would you like that? So I had arranged to see Nelson Mandela. And lo and behold, the colleagues who I was going with to the World Cup started to slowly bail out because they didn't want to go and fly all the distance to Johannesburg. And I'm freaking out saying, guys, it's Nelson Mandela. Like, and I don't think the other folks, although they very much appreciated him for sure, I, I don't think they had quite the same level of enthusiasm. And he died shortly thereafter. It always bothered me. And that is one man that, boy, talk about the arena. Doesn't get much better than that. Is there anything else you want to share before we wrap up? No, you know, you asked me some very good provocative questions. You're an interesting interviewer, you know that? You're not the normal interviewer. Most interviewers are quite linear in the mm. questions that they ask me. So I'm quite used to it. Yours, I, I think almost every one, you made me pause uh, and reflect, but I just never answered those questions before. So kudos to you. Mm. Thank you. This has been my COVID project to give back to the world and try and create a little hope. Good for you. Dark times. So yeah, yeah. And I think you had mentioned to me, if I recall that you've gone through some struggles in addition to COVID. Uh, yeah. 2018, basically I blew up my life. I was part of a yeah. privately owned company and uh, had been with them for 11 years and uh, was massively grateful. But I had 
gotten to the point where it was time for me to leave the business, but it was also, I had run into some issues, you know, alcohol. In fact, I want to develop another podcast about our obsession with alcohol. Canada's number one in terms of increase in consumption during COVID. We have a $3.4 billion deficit between healthcare and the tax dollars that we- Wow. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, alcohol is big in Canada. Well, like I think we're number five in the world in terms of alcohol consumption. But it's one of those things where it's become so insidious, very much like smoking. I remember the days when you walk in anybody's office and they have this like heaping ashtray and it yeah. was just normal and people would have a drink at their desk at four o'clock. And alcohol has continued to have that hold on us, where cigarettes is gradually got pushed out and pushed out. But you kind of can't go out socially without people going, come on, have a drink. No, come on, really, seriously. No, I'll get you something. Yeah. And it's uh, so anyway, the podcast that I want to do is less about living a sober lifestyle, which is there's a lot of those kind of messages. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting, it, it's a very interesting topic. You know, I'd be, let me know when you do that. I'd love to hear it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I wish John well on the long road of recovery. If anyone can get back on his bike, it'll be him. Thank you for listening. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast. And if you feel someone else might benefit from listening to this episode, please share it. Leave a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to support my efforts in creating this podcast, become a member of The Arena. Go to my website, thearena-podcast.com and click on the support button. Your listening and support is so greatly appreciated. I look forward to sharing my next guest story. It's about a woman who has had the most remarkable life. As a whitewater river guide, a healer, an author, PhD, and living with the most painful legacy of being the daughter of one of the engineers responsible for building the hydrogen bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki don't miss it. Until next time, my name is Linda McLaughlin in The Arena.